Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounced on its point, wow. We've got the thumbs up. Let's cabin crew cross check doors. <laughs> We're going to start our descent, our descent, our ascension. You're listening to the Outer Sanctum. Welcome back for another week. I'm so excited about the games coming up in the week ahead. I'm Emma Race. I'm Kate Sear. I'm Lucy Race. Alicia sometimes. I'm Felicity Race. I'm consent we're starting our ascension <laughs> is that right that sounds much bigger than just a lift off a lift off are we gonna yeah. rock it oh yeah yeah you bet yeah. i feel like this is a finals uh series that it's the final countdown that we've dreamt of all our lives um let's talk about reflections of the round that was there was so many and varied excellent things to talk about uh kate well, it was extremely exciting. So two very big upsets with Collingwood beating Brisbane and GWS beating the Western Bulldogs. Um, Adelaide, of course, won in what was an absolutely fantastic contest on Friday night. And Melbourne beat Carlton in really what was probably the um, the only game of the round that, that sort of felt like it wasn't quite a close contest. Um, but otherwise it was thrilling. And I'm so happy actually to see that in this, as we come into the last round of the season, Everything's now up for grabs. Yeah, the mathematical equation of it was so intense that actually Nicole has done a maths injury and isn't <laughs> with out. us today from trying to work out the permutations and combinations. She's done her eigenvector. That's right. That's Ooh, right. Ouch. Um, but no, fantastic to see the competition alive and well. Um, I obviously, as an Adelaide fan, I was delighted to see Adelaide win. But I was so I was really impressed with and happy for GWS, who I feel like are the very, really big story of the year after winning the Wooden Spoon. Last year, they're a genuine chance at winning. And as I said, um, I tweeted out over the weekend, if you look at all of the commentary leading up to the, the start of the AFL-M season, a lot of commentators are predicting that GWS will win its first flag. But the women could win. The, the women could be the ones to win the first flag for GWS because I think they're playing good footy. Um, so it's just fantastic. I can't wait for this weekend. GWS threw up one of my highlights of the round too, which was Courtney Gum. That third quarter was unbelievable. She had, over the whole game, 23 disposals, but 20 of those possessions were contested possessions, and she's actually leading the competition. Look at me doing stats. (laughs) But she was extraordinary, and she kicked that fantastic goal that really, um, you know, they got momentum from there. My other highlight, being a Melbourne supporter, was that six-goal first quarter. That was really super exciting. Um, But with football, there's highs and lows. And um, I was very sad to see our friend Mel Hickey um, Mm. get injured. That was a hard one to watch, wasn't it? And if you think about ACLs being being out for 12 months, 
I really hope that she defies all the odds because otherwise that means she'll miss the VFLW season and the AFLW season next year. So if anyone can do it and get back early, it would be Mel Hickey because she's in such cracking form going into the surgery. And we just apologise for anything that we did on Saturday morning um, when she was on our show that we may have, yeah, we know she is a bit superstitious. So I don't know if anyone wants to take responsibility for that. Well, I did see somebody tweet tweet at us and blame us and I saw you take responsibility, Em, (laughs) which I don't think you should have done. Well, I don't blame me because I was in Adelaide. (laughs) and Nicole's not here. Let's blame Nicole. That's right. Um, No, I was in... What position were you playing in Adelaide? I'll (laughs) tell you what I was playing. I was at Wome Adelaide and I was sitting in front of Sufi singers nearly the whole whole three days. So I had to catch up on my footy. So I came back, raced, got the DVR out and, you know, started watching the games. And I'd heard some of the scores, but Collingwood derailing Brisbane, that was a you know, hard for Brisbane fans, good for good for Pies fans. Playing in Burp and Gary, which I reckon is a, just the weirdest name ever, and I did find out it's an indigenous indigenous name, meaning the place of green wattle. So gorgeous, oh, but Burp and Gary, yeah. funny. Um, and again, the same players: Chloe Malloy, sixteen touches; Meg Hutchins incredible third quarter goal and Christina Bernardi and Moana Hope it was just it was just good to see them in form and I felt that they were really gelling together coming together and I was you know high-fiving weather that game was so wet and it got so dark that at some points I was struggling to see them it's interesting Alicia do you reckon if there was four more games would and Collingwood's just hit their straps. They yeah. don't have their skipper. They still no. won. It was amazing. Um, they've hit their form. Do you reckon they'd make the finals? I really do. I know I'm biased, but this is the same thing happened last year. They sort of hit their stride towards the end of the season. So I don't know. It just needs a bit more warm-up or something. Yeah, maybe they need a few more practice matches yeah. before they start. Um, Collingwood was, was the one for me this round too. You know, I looked at them and thought, wow, oh, you've really left it late to come and disrupt the ladder and the finals and, you know, everything that's going on. And, you know, great for them. They're going to end the season, um, you know, on a high probably um, in terms of their performance compared to the start. Um, Christina Bernardi was the standout for me. She was amazing, amazing. So, yeah, I couldn't keep my eyes off her. Um, But, you know, the other games were – they were all terrific games this round. Um, There wasn't one that, you know, that I looked at and thought anybody could complain about the standard of or the – you know, even over the course of such a short season, you can see the progression and, you know, I don't know, just there's more football brains on the field now. There's mm. more people playing like natural footballers, knowing where to be and what position. And it's it's getting less obvious um, who are the who's new to football and who's actually played football for a long time. And I think that that's something that we are just going to, you know, keep seeing. Um, but I also think, you know, having said they should have more practice matches, I think this is what's going to be critical, that you can't just have a national competition that comes together for eight weeks a year on one practice match and expect progression and development. You've, yeah. you've, there's got to be some commitment to other, you know, run-up, um, you know, other longer season to give teams like Collingwood who are just getting it together, even GWS, you know, really hitting their straps now. You've just got to give them time and there isn't enough time at the moment. Tell that to at Andrew from the Daily Telegraph who said women's footy is just not gelling. 
Why Why are you reading his comments? I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah, that's rule number one. Do not read the comments. You're right. You need that memento tattoo written backwards on your forehead. Do not read yes. the comments. I think you're right. I, I also thought Collingwood and GWS were standouts on the weekend. What I felt like I'm starting to see a lot more is people knowing where their um, teammates are. There's more of that instinctive um, kind of spatial awareness of where people will be ready to take the ball or collect the ball. I thought GWS had some... Um, extraordinary goals where actually they were reeling around but they were getting the right angles they weren't um, they weren't mm-hmm. goals that just happened they didn't just dribble through they didn't just make it over the line they were sailing through they were from tricky angles I thought Cora Staunton was extraordinary mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. I thought Amanda Ferrugia is coming into her own she really steps up and so and, and then great I thought, to see her kick a goal too yeah, like yeah. I sorry to interrupt you but oh, I amazing. love seeing her kick that goal yeah. exactly. and, and she's pretty contained and I don't know if you saw the interview with her afterwards but she said I really do keep my emotions pretty contained but I just couldn't resist yep. really letting loose when I finally kicked that I goal. I also thought, um, let's not forget to talk about the teams that aren't going to make the final. I actually thought Carlton, even though the, the score blew out and obviously Melbourne you know, got off to a flying start, there were some really good signs for them. Mm. Um, and yes, I had my eye on the Hoskins girls having <laughs> had them in the studio on Saturday. But geez, they're ferocious. Mm. Um, unbelievable. And it was really nice to see Darcy getting involved. Yeah, and I thought Frio the same. Oh, I thought there's yeah. really good signs for Frio and... Um, I would love to see them really fire next year. I can't believe that just a couple of weeks ago we were saying Adelaide's potentially out of this and now they're potentially right back in it. Um, There was a few standouts for me from a commentary perspective. I heard Monconti called, Monique Conti called Moncont. And I was like, oh, the Moncont. And so I thought if you uh, were to extrapolate that out to other players, Daisy Pierce becomes Daypair (laughs) and Ruth Wallace would become Rutwall. And Nat Exxon would be Nat Exxon. <laughs> Just in case you're playing along at home. Mon Cont is too no. close to... Yeah. It's yeah, probably it's a good time to it put in French. a comment. <laughs> probably a good time to put in a commentary watch as well. And I heard um, our friend Sam Lane talking about Utri saying she's out with a calf. And I had a picture yeah. of she them off that. to the yeah. country fair. She did that the other week too. She's out with a calf. That's very sweet. I'd, actually, I'd also heard one the week before where someone said about <laughs> Meg Hutchins kept her feeting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I quite liked. Yeah, that's interesting, funny. isn't it? Yeah. Um, I thought other highlights were um, – yeah, you've got one. I've got, Sorry. I've got two. Um, I I thought a lot of the goals were real highlights this this week. Yeah. We've talked about Cora. She did an awesome sidestep, um, picked, collected the ball, did a sidestep, kicked it, and Monique Conti, as we're talking about her, uh, and also Georgia G from Carlton, both kicked their first goals, yeah. and that was really exciting. Erin Phillips basically standing in the goal square. Oh. It, they could basically tell her. It would still be worthwhile her going out there and playing even if she didn't kick the ball because obviously she's got um, the quad awareness, which is still hurting her. Um, but if she was just there to take grabs, mm. it would still be – would you still play her? Oh, I think you absolutely. would, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, she's one of those people If where if you can get her onto the field, you put her on the field. Like sort of like someone like Buddy Franklin who even when he's injured, which he's, you know, he's played a lot of his career clearly sore and so on, you just put him out there because his presence – um, is such that people flock to him and you might have two or three players come to him. And that still happened in that game against Fremantle where you would see two or three or four players all getting around Aaron Phillips and then freeing up other people in the in the forward line. I think Beck Goddard, I mean, here in my life, I sound like I'm 
mansplaining a bit, but Beck Goddard coached so well in that <laughs> um, in that game just because she did keep she she managed to keep the Ford fifty free and force one on one contests. And when that happens, I mean, when you've got Erin Phillips there, you're bound to something's bound to happen. It was great also to see Sarah Perkins kick a goal. I don't mm. want to bring the mood down, and I know that towards the end of the show we will talk about the games coming up. But I think we need to prepare ourselves for the fact that there could be a lot of people playing their last game this weekend people that are going to retire that we don't know about yet because there is such an influx of um, new people coming into the um, league. What we saw at the start of the year is that there was the, the memo and that there's been a lot of talk about trying to make this a speed game. I would keep a really close eye on people who have been in the game for a while that might get moved on and um, if you can get along to games this weekend mm. just to show support to the players yeah. that you've loved and people who have been pioneers who without them this probably doesn't happen the way that it has um make sure you're there if you're loving this game make sure you're there to say goodbye potentially to people who may be playing their last game or their second last game i think you're right you know i think i, I was very um conscious on the weekend of watching players like georgia g and sophie lee mm. um tiny tiny little fast um athletic players and you know that is kind of like the next generation can we adopt them up mm. can we have them all on this show like Oh, it'd be great, Forever? wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be great. What about the matchup of Libby Birch on Cora Thornton? <laughs> I know. Like, it's just it's tough. Extraordinary. Tough, tough, tough. Tough day at the office. I, I know yeah. you've said before, though, Em, you know, that this is a game where women of all shapes and sizes, all heights can play and that you'd singled Libby Birch out as, a, as an exemplar of that because she plays on such different players from week to week. And playing on Cora Staunton's another example. You know, she has played against short women, tall women. Cora Staunton is a big, strong woman, I think, a powerful woman who is another one of those very intimidating forwards. Like when she goes near the ball, she's another player who I feel anything can happen. And she has been, to me, she's been almost the story of the season because, um, you know, she's just come from, not she hasn't come from nowhere, of course. She's a very accomplished athlete. But for us anyway in Australia who don't know about her, it feels like she came from nowhere and she has been such a joy to watch. I think we can add another dangerous forward into that conversation. That's Tegan Cunningham. Mm. Yes. Fierce. So she kicked three goals along with Elise O'Day on, um, su- on Sunday. against Carlton and there was a moment where she actually got a free kick because her defender was just so worried about where she was going to go that she infringed. I actually think that those two players that you mentioned, Tegan Cunningham and Cora Staunton, are the two players in the league who, if they get a ball in a pack, are most likely to come out with it. There's some power in both of their legs Mm. and probably from Cora's rugby experience. She's probably done a lot of training on, on that, but... They can just push through and, and they, they, you know, it's amazing to see. Tegan's basketball, I think you really see that. When she goes up high, she has a really good understanding of where the ball's going to come down and how to get her hands to the ball. Obviously, she has height on her side mm-hmm. as well. But um, I think that's where you've seen a really cohesive cross-coding experience, which has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when it works well, it's like well-orchestrated Broadway. <laughs> that's my take. Well, there is a song at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and some jazzy hands. <laughs> All right, so let's melee, ladies. Felicity, what caught your eye this week? Well, obviously the Mel Hickey story is a big one. And, you know, on the the ongoing list of players going down with knee injuries, it got me looking at what's going on in the AFLM with the preseason. And I was actually quite shocked looking at it, knowing that there there is now 90 players already ruled out um, with injury um, from 
either a combination of a long-term injury from last season, training incidents, or injuries during the pre-season. And any, there some any maths injuries? Nicole um, Hayes. No, <laughs> the eigenvector. I did write that down, as you said. I'm not sure what the uh, – did I get it right? An eigenvector injury. Um, but the – I spelled it right. Oh, she's you. spelling it correct. <laughs> but, yeah, some big ones on the weekend, obviously Tyson Goldsack, Brody Smith, both ACLs, and a really horrific ankle break to Marty Gleeson from Essendon. But – I then got a little bit anatomical going, okay, how safe is this sport for men to play? Um, because I was a bit concerned. And um, so I tallied up all um, the knee injuries. There's 21 knee injuries, a whole range of ankle injuries, and then I had to go via the human body. There's 71 of the 90 players are injured below the waist. Um, so it got me thinking that Ooh, I'm, not I'm not sure, sure where this is going. I'm I worried. Just, I'm just thinking that there is a significant risk of a lower limb injury as a man in this game, and they should probably be very careful. You know, yeah. if that many are ruled out before the season oh, even starts. Oh, you're feeling uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable. It makes yeah. me uncomfortable. She gets her eyes from her father and her sarcasm from her mother. <laughs> but that is huge, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's massive. starting the season with 90 players already mm. ruled out. What yeah. percentage is that? Oh, don't math me. <laughs> He's trying to send me out. It's going to be close to 10%. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. Eight to ten percent before the season's even started. I don't know. I've just had a mass injury. I'm I'm actually on on a quite serious note. The interesting thing is when you go through all those injuries, there's very few soft tissue injuries, and I guess they all come later in the season. But that did surprise me that most of the injuries are structural. It's knees, ankles, uh, you know, other than you know the occasional groin or back soreness. um, Everything else was. You know, shoulders and heads, shoulders, knees. I was just about to say. I feel like there's another musical (laughs) and musical number coming on. Heads, shoulders, knees, and toes. Knees and toes. Thanks for the report, Doctor Google. That's okay. Just be safe out there, everyone. Maybe we should all just sit at home or just play kick to kick. Yes. Well, there were on International Women's Day, a day of celebration all around the world. The AFLW welcomed a new named partner that is an official partner, which will inject some money into the AFLW and give uh, some much-needed support. Nicole Livingston, the AFL's head of women's football, was delighted to welcome this named partner as an official partner of the AFLW and said it's fitting on International Women's Day we're able to announce this and help inspire young women to pursue their footy dreams. But it's got here a spelling mistake. It says to purse their footy dreams. So well done press release <laughs> and then um but it's also that uh, means that the naming rights of this par- uh, partner will have the kick to kick program which allows thousands of families and friends the opportunity to have a kick on their favorite ground after the final sor- siren of the aflw and jlt matches and selected games during the 2018 premiership season so there'll be kick to kick coming back does um, that need a sponsor? Yeah, apparently it does. <laughs> Normally the second siren goes and everybody brings their own ball. And Yep. You can sell great. anything that's though. Good. You can sell that's anything great. when it comes to football. What I love most is that you haven't named the name partner and I feel like it's, this is Rob. He's a dentist. We can show you his. It's because we're on the ABC, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also why would we give yeah. them another pump up? That's right. But it's so is curious. It I'm just going to ask like a quick question. Is it something healthy? No. Is it sexy led? (laughs) (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. Oh, no. Don't you think that's healthy? 
That's healthy. Yeah. It is. Gets Some your heart going. Some of it. I don't know. Um, last week we talked um, a little bit about Essendon and we got some massive responses. One beautifully big email from an Essendon fan who was still hurting and we really appreciate. I think Lucy responded to that, I think. I did. I yep. did. Yep. So well wishes to you all, but there's been some developments in Asada over the week, Kate. There has been. Um, oh, big sigh. <laughs> I feel like it's a big sigh because it's just the case that, that n- feels like it never ends. Um, and I think last year on this show, actually, I did say that I thought there would be more lawsuits to come because I do think um, that there might be um, players who pursue damages from the club or from the AFL at some stage. Um, but, yeah, essentially we saw in the news this week that there is uh, a new legal proceeding of sorts that's now underway. A member of the public has lodged what's called a freedom of information request um, asking for ASADA, which is the anti-doping authority, um, who oversaw parts of the investigation, to publicly release the doping control forms that were signed by the Essendon players from 2011 to 2012. It's kind of complicated from a legal perspective, but um, essentially what it means is this, that um, sometimes in some circumstances, if you're a government body, you might be required or expected to provide public documents to the public and this is a bit of an unusual one because ASADA is a government authority but it has these doping control forms from players that are private medical information and so the AFL and ASADA both want to block that move. So there is um, a stoush that's that's developed. Nathan Lovett-Murray, who was one of the players for Essendon, is one of the people who's supporting the push to release those forms publicly. Um, but the very big story actually that underpins all of this is that the AFL is essentially threatening to leave ASADA if mm-hmm. the forms are released. They are saying, and, and I think essentially what the AFL's view is, is that if it turns out that a member of the public can go to ASADA and through the freedom of information process get access to personal medical information of players, then we don't want to be signed up to that agency anymore because of the medical privacy um, aspects. And... Um, Many years ago, the Commonwealth government had said very clearly to the AFL, we will give you, we will not give you money, we will not sponsor or support the AFL unless you sign up to ASADA and comply with the ASADA processes. So there's a lot of money at stake and potentially at risk here if the AFL decides to break with ASADA. So this is just another manifestation of the whole Essendon um, saga, which is something to watch. The interesting bit I read about that was it, the players aren't blocking it because the players believe that these medical forms can yes. show that they signed consents before the drugs in question were even available in Australia. So there's no way they could have been consenting to That's the particular right. drugs in question. And so I think they seem like they'd be quite happy for the timeline to come out. That's right. And I think... Um What's interesting to me is that this seems to be a kind of backdoor way, at least for some players who are, as you say, Felicity, happy for their information to be released publicly. For them, it's a kind of roundabout or backdoor way to try and clear their names because there's no further right of appeal in the the old proceeding that happened. They went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport couldn't go any further at an international level. Um, They were found to have committed an anti-doping rule violation and, as we remember, they were um, sanctioned. Um, 
so they could they couldn't appeal that any further. So this is a this is another route that they're now using to try and clear their names. So But it sets a precedent, doesn't it? So if you can do it this time and it may be in the public's best interest, what about next time when it's not and you're all of a sudden you're breaching privacy? Potentially. I think that's probably the AFL's position. Um, I actually think the AFL are right to block or to object to that information being made public as a matter of principle. There is some kind of conjecture about quite what information would be made public and whether it can be identified or linked to individuals by name. Apparently it can't be. But you're right, Alicia, I think that's the bigger concern down the track. Is there also a question of ownership? Like if it's your own medical information and you're the player... How come you can't say it should be released and how come the AFL gets to own your medical information? Yeah, that's right. That's kind of complicated maybe for another show. <laughs> they kind of, yeah, it's a complicated area. Of right. Right. Is there, legal podcast. If, you, if the <laughs> AFL... To spin off. If the AFL... Le- people would love that actually. <laughs> if the AFL leave Asada, is there someone else that does what Asada does? Is there another... Pasada? <laughs> they have talked about... Salada. Salada. Engaging a private firm. Yeah. Okay. They could. They, they could. could do that. The, the It'll ish- be a one-man panel. <laughs> Michael. Well, Michael Mr. P. Mr. P. Mr. P. Oh, my gosh. He comes to collect you. Mr. P. 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 Oh, we found <laughs> you. Mr. P. P. Done. Okay, let's next topic. So, Mr. P and Mr. P. P. <laughs> no, Mr. P in a cup. Mr. P in a cup. Oh, Imagine him getting it. to the door, too. You wouldn't know not... Mr. P. How have these things not been brought up by the AFL? On the weekend, we talked about um, there were so many press releases from the AFL last week. How was this? How was Mr. P not mooted as one I of them? I don't know. Lucy? Yeah, basically the AFL over the last two weeks have delivered a smorgasbord of ideas and I'd just mm. like to run through a few of them for those. Can you say smorgasbord? Smorgasbord. <laughs> Sean Connery's in, in the Sean house. Connery. <laughs> Do you know how to be like Sean Connery? Just say Lapsong Sushong. Lapsong Sushong. <laughs> we hit all the really important topics. Sorry, really go on this. Um, so the biggest thing that they came out with was this idea of a super panel that will be extremely powerful. It will have superpowers. <laughs> it would basically be, co- it would cover AFL, AFLW and AFLX. Now, there's no real clarity on what the composition of that panel would be, but the AFL have, have said it would include current players, coaches, administrators, probably some of the biggest names in the business. There's been no discussion about whether it would actually include somebody who has experience in women's football and... I think, you know, it's, it's it's an interesting concept and we'll have to see what happens. But some of the other things that have been talked about is the fact that a night grand final for this season is still on the cards and they'll make a decision about that. Um, there's been discussion about player contracts ending on the 31st of October so players could play in AFLX franchises if they were to be something. There's been discussion about a wild card finals weekend where basically teams who'd missed the finals get, you know, play off and could get into the finals. When everyone play- gets a medal. When, yeah, exactly. When are the players going to say, you know what, I'm not playing any more games? <laughs> no, no. Like I signed up as a kid to play 18 well, home and away games and now I'm playing 23 4, home and away, yeah. a finals wild card draw in four China. In, in China, China. plus yep. AFLX, plus JLT. Yep. So also on the cards is scrapping the buy round. So there's another game. Um Last week, the AFL and four clubs that would not be named uh, went to India on a fact-finding mission. Do you mean um, Voldemort? Can we call those other? No, four they teams actually Voldemort? didn't want to be identified. He so it's a secret, the secret Voldemort trip, the Voldemort, Voldemort Four, Voldemort tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there's talk that the Shanghai game will continue for the next five years. Um, confirmation that nothing's happening in Tasmania and that um, Gil McLaughlin's put off his trip down there. There's been talk about mid-season player movement, the idea of broadcasters talking to umpires during games and one of my particular favourites, they've now scrapped the warm-up in favour of fan engagement. Which I don't know how you do that when budgets have already been set. And what are we engaging with as well, fans I don't if know. there's no warm-up? Is it T-shirt cannons? T-shirt oh, cannons. Oh, that reminds that worries me because I of Maud, Maud. Maud Flanders yeah. was killed, of course. So I'd like to sort of draw this all together and say when I look at that list, I see a common thread that they're all about change, they're about tinkering with traditions, there's a focus on commercialisation, and there's more than a hint of Americanising the game. At the same time, the AFL have released the 2018 season campaign, and I don't know whether you've seen it. It's called Don't Believe in Never. So there's been a series of three videos that have come out, one focusing on Alia Alia, one on an, a girls' competition in uh, Western Sydney, and one on a premiership coach. These videos are powerful because they're stirring, they're about grassroots and their aim is for us to engage with that game, with the game on an emotional level and that's why it works because that's what we want. We want to engage with the game on an emotional level but if they keep changing it, they're going to run the risk of all of us becoming jaded and disillusioned and in my opinion, we're going to lose the passionate, died in the wool, paid up fan and we're also going to really threaten the next generation of footballers coming through. Can I ask something? Yes, like, you one may. of your comments was scrapping the warm up. Can we discuss? Yes, I feel very well, strongly are, about that. Are players not going to warm up? Like, is they, this not on the can, field? Okay, no. So, so in they tiny can warm little up? indoor space, that will be enough to prevent injury. I think you know, I'm all about what the they injuries. can do is that they can warm up well, well, well earlier. And then, but so what we've seen, you know, when you go to the game and you turn and up then cool down. early <laughs> to have, have your pie yeah. because you don't like to eat during yeah. the game and you get to watch them have a really full warm up. Yeah. That's been scrapped. But this is what I don't it's understand. Ridiculous. Like, I know whether we'll win or lose if Bruce kicks goals when he's doing the warm up. Mm. Like, all my superstitions are out. I mean, I don't know how Luke Bruce feels, but <laughs> like, you know, you see them kicking yeah. for goal and you go like, okay, I've got a good sense of who's who's on today. Mm. Can it's I part say of the game for me. It is. But can I say like, if it is that the players on the, and, and the clubs have requested that, then fine. I mean, that makes sense to me. I if they have they said, have. For, you know, but if they have not, what what on earth could be the reason for doing it that way? What what possible? And, oh, I was just going to say fan engagement. I hope it's not with the players because their head's got to be in the game. Absolutely. Yeah, but we're the fans and no, we like the warm-up. Can't that be the engagement I'm that engaged. we have? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's the, bizarre. You know, and you often see a player doing a last-minute sort of fitness yeah. run out there. But you think of like a team like St Kilda who used to always, they would run out right at the very last minute. So they would use their warm-up time. They're gonna. I think they'll have a little bit of time where they can run out and do a little kick like for once they've run out little kick. through the song. Mm. But a team like St Kilda would have to completely change the way that they come onto the field. Malcolm Blight said something funny during the week uh, on SEN about the super panel because um, he says, We've all, we're already paying Steve Hocking and Gil McLaughlin and everyone in the AFL squillions. We've got a commission there to oversee the whole thing and this is just giving it back to the clubs. And then he says, there's a thing called the phone where you actually ring up and talk to someone. Yeah, I isn't it that their job? Like the super panel, isn't that the job? 
Isn't that the executive's job? It is. I mean, I don't mind... For me, the super panel, what's most important to it to me is something about its processes. If the super yeah. panel involve, is a kind of genuinely de- democratic process that involves really engaging with fans and listening to and hearing from fans about what they would like to see in the game because we are the stakeholders, we are the custodians of the game, I think, um, and we get the opportunity to have some input into the, the game and what we want to see, then great. You know, if the super panel becomes a way of facilitating that more democratic engagement, fantastic. But if it is what has been mooted in the paper, which mm. is a series of essentially what I think at this stage all men who used to play the game, um, offering their views on things and being the people that they have to, have to be checked on everything. Just watch it's really Fox strange. Footy. I don't know what's Just going watch on, on the couch. Yeah. Just watch Fox footy. Just watch one of those footy shows. I'll give you their opinion. They're <laughs> all right, right there, right? <laughs> That's right. It's crazy. Not one woman even listed in that article, but yet they're going to preside over AFLW. They might give one a go. No silver footies in the room. They're going to preside <laughs> over AFLX. I mean... Who's really going to be flying the flag for the silver footies? But you're right, Lissy. Where's it's that all acrobat? About, it's all it's about probably... emotion, though, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. I'm flying the flag. I'm flying the flag today. So we, um, so we <laughs> talked about this. We talked about this on the radio show on Saturday, and we asked people to um, send us what their topics would be. <laughs> and one thing that kept coming back was people <laughs> wanted to. Kate's lost the plot. People wanted Her flags <laughs> are fading. <laughs> I'm coming to you, Kathy Sear, so you better get your <laughs> professionalism back on. One of the things that oh, kept coming up never was Tasmania, that yeah. it's a big query. Yeah. And and I think that what that speaks to is the heart of footy, that when you're talking about, I've got to say, God bless Jeff Kennett on this one occasion at least, because he was like, we'll never be playing a game in China. I don't see the point of that. You, you don't sign up as fans or as players to go and play in China for a, four points for one of our very important matches. That will never happen. But I think that, that the direct response to that is, why are we ignoring Tasmania, but we've got an open, um, you know, happy open arm policy for China and India and we're like let's get it right here first I guess is that what people are saying well it's great to get overseas fans but yeah do it here and right and Tassie's overseas (laughs) (laughs) the other thing I'm really encouraged about is that a lot of the people that wrote back to us also agree don't move the grand final to a night game yeah oh no please tradition I know, please. please. Keep have, it as it is. Have you got yourself together, Kate? Talk to us about Tassie. <laughs> Her map of Tasmania. You had I some have. news about that. I have, Well, not just Tassie. I mean, to me, increasingly all of these things are connected. Um, as you said, Em, there's this criticism that's um, that's been ongoing for a while but really is um, becoming stronger. There's a chorus of people who are becoming very concerned about the state of play in Tasmania at the moment and the failure or the apparent failure of the AFL to nurture existing heartland of of footy in a bid to not just go overseas to India and China and try and grow new markets, but also to develop new products like AFLX. And I wanted to share a bit of a story about something similar. It's it's different, but to me it kind of connects to the broader question of the need to nurture football in Australia first and in the heartland of football. Um, So today in Melbourne, a friend of the pod, um, Professor Barry Judd, who we've had on the podcast before, he's um, an academic who does research on Indigenous football in the central in central Australia. 
Barry's here speaking in Melbourne about some research that he's been doing over the last few years about Aboriginal football. And I was very lucky to um, get a copy of the speech that Barry's giving in Melbourne today. And he has given me permission to share some of the conclusions from his research. Um, I want to just pause at this point and say that if you're interested in what it is that I have to say, you should write down and go online we'll tweet it out later but um, a website that Barry has developed which talks about the research that he's done it's called well-being not winning so if you google that you'll find it but essentially Barry has spent a number of years living up in central um, Australia particularly working in the Papunya area where football is very important to that community and one of the things that he has found I just want to share a little bit of his speech with you, he says he's found over the years that um, there's a league that's established up there called the Central Australian Football League and Papunya, which is a very remote Aboriginal community, fielded a team in that league. And what elders in the Papunya community have been saying for many years to Barry now is that that league places young young men and other members of their community at increased and unnecessary risk. Um, According to elders, the problem is that the the structure of the Central Australian Football League requires young footballers from the Papunya community to play both home and away matches in the regional hub of Alice Springs, which is some 240 kilometres away. And the elders in that community believe that these structural arrangements of the league up there contribute to negative social outcomes. Um, Barry says that um, in Papunya, most young men are unemployed. Fuel costs more than $2 a litre. It costs close to $10 to buy a pie and sauce. And the additional social, economic and cultural burdens that are placed on this community, which is one of the poorest in Australia, if they have to travel long distances to play football games, makes the regional competition unsustainable and that it works to make what Barry calls an already disadvantaged community even more so. Um, Elders in that community essentially want their own league. And um, on our podcast a couple of years ago, Barry spoke about the fact that some of the Aboriginal elders had developed a kind of breakaway competition. And um, what Barry has concluded from his research, working with elders in that community, is that what they need up there is their own competition, a competition that's on country. He says um, that neither, he's found in his research that and I'll quote from Barry's speech here, that neither the people of Papunya nor the people of Alice Springs are happy with the current organisational structure of Australian football in Central Australia. Both groups believe current arrangements for playing football are contributing to negative social impacts that are bad for Papunya and for Alice Springs. And so, as I said, they want a league of their own in ways that would facilitate more football in remote communities where young men can stick Um, stay on community, spend time with elders and family and where elders can give those men the guidance and life experience that um, they need. Um, But the problem is, of course, that they don't have support for this kind of competition and that the Central Australian Football League is the dominant structure at the moment. So Barry's recommendation and the community's recommendation, the community's strong view is that something needs to be done. And I'll just conclude with... Um, what Barry says in his speech, the speech he's delivering today in Melbourne. He says, on-country football in Central Australia has the power to improve quality of life and to save it. Supporting initiatives by Aboriginal people, for Aboriginal people, 
that strengthen and enhance their version of the Australian game constitutes the next frontier for the AFL. Puts so everything in perspective, doesn't it? Certainly it certainly does. It certainly does. So I'd that's... Say, um, well, who would like to see the AFL expand to Central Australia before China? You know, if there's a choice of where you're going to spend money on developing the game, why aren't we developing it here? Yeah, and developing it... after regional Developing it in the way, in the that, way that it needs, it needs to, to be. be this is a thing, like, there's a one-size-fits-all policy at the moment and we're seeing in Pecola, which is, um, they're, they're looking at moving the, away from the yep. AFL... The Pecola District Football and Netball League, which want, is in that Goulburn-Murray region. And they want to go out on their own because mm. it's not servicing them. And then I also think about what we're going to see when the VFLW comes back and the fact that they're trying to streamline um, all of these affiliated teams with the AFLW teams. We're going to, It's going to throw everything up in the air. It's going to be a really different season coming up. And one size fits all doesn't work we're we're such a huge and diverse um country and sport does need to be beneficial it shouldn't be eroding um life experience it shouldn't be eroding your opportunities but it should be enhancing it at every turn shouldn't it yeah absolutely and i think as i said to me all of these stories increasingly connect i think the afl has some serious problems that it's maybe stretched too thin that it's trying to reach out to these other markets and you've got not just this attempt at developing an on or this desire to develop an on-country competition that would have um, massive social benefits and community benefits for the aboriginal population in central australia according to the findings of Barry's research but also more locally Lucy as you say other competitions that want to split from the AFL um, the, the demise or w- what looks like we're heading towards the demise of football in Tasmania mm. um, I think very big questions need to be asked about what the AFL is doing Dr. Bridie O'Donnell is a medical doctor and a former rower, triathlete and national road time trial champion who represented Australia at three world championships and once held the world track hour record. She's now the inaugural head of the newly created Victorian Office for Women in Sport and Recreation. We sat down with her four months into her new role to talk about the office and what she's trying to achieve. Bridie, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us about your new role and what your remit is? Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm the head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, which is the first of its kind anywhere in Australia. There aren't other offices for women in sport and recreation. And it was an office created in response to an inquiry that was led by uh, Richmond Premiership winning President Peggy O'Neill. So in 2015, she chaired an inquiry that looked into women and girls in sport and active recreation and determined where the gaps were and what the barriers were. And one of the really sort of standout findings for me when I read that was that we're doing better in terms of gender equality for women and girls in sport and rec. But if we keep going at the pace we're going, we'll get there in 170 years. I thought, yeah, that's not quite quickly enough. (laughs) Really? Um, So what that came from that were nine recommendations. And a lot of them are rather intangible. You know, one of them is around board quotas. But a lot of them are around increasing participation, improving the images of women used in mainstream media for sport and recreation, um, enabling women to have more choice, uh, improving leadership opportunities. So that that's challenging. And when I first read that and then applied for the job, I thought, oh, my goodness, what will this job be? Uh, and then, in fact, uh, four months into the job, I'm trying to, to determine the scope because everything that we do keeps coming back to looking at rigid gender stereotypes, gender inequality, um, 
quite closed ways of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. These are the negative elements. Of course, as you are all aware, the positive elements are that sport and rec are supported by passionate, motivated volunteers, people who give their lives to sport, mm-hmm. parents, um, people who help out at clubs, run committees, all those sorts of things. And so for a lot of those people, the change required is challenging. It's confronting for them. Yeah. Um, so I think if I can get gender equality in sport by the election at the end of the year, <laughs> I'll be winning. <laughs> But it's a, yeah, my roommate is broad. Broad. So you come to this role having been a professional cyclist um, and you know from that background all too well some of the challenges that women face in professional sport. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experiences? Mm. I had been an athlete um, after after school when I'd Mm. taken up rowing and triathlon and both of those sports are actually um, very equal in many ways. Rowing because, particularly in Victoria, it's a huge school sport. Mm. So I didn't do it at school. I didn't go to the kind of school where they had rowing. But for girls, it's enormous. And the head of the school girls is the biggest regatta in the Southern Hemisphere. It's on next weekend. weekend. (laughs) And um, it's a pretty amazing sport for girls. I think it teaches them lots of really good things. Mm. So I started doing that and everyone was treated equally and Olympics um, funded men's and women's places equally. So I thought, oh, yeah, there's no issues around gender inequality in sport. And then I did triathlon, and that stemmed from an American-themed event from the Ironman, and I did Ironman triathlon. And they've had Title IX in the US for over 40 years now, which means that funding to college sports needs to be distributed equally amongst men and women. So with all the money that goes into college for NFL, equal numbers of dollars have to go in. That's why they're so great at soccer and other sports. But then to move to a sport like road cycling, where it's just, it's like, uh, it's run by pirates. You know, you've got some great teams, very strong teams that are professional and do their job well, but there are a lot of teams that don't. And because I was old, um, I was um, affected by the discriminatory age average laws that the UCI has for women's teams. They don't have them for men's teams. So they say that a women's professional cycling team has to have an age average of 25 years or less. And if you're me and you're 34 and you start riding a bike, you're dragging that average average up. So a really strong team doesn't want you. They, they're looking at their numbers and their ages as much as they're looking at the calibre of the riders. Why is that something that only affects that's a, that's female? That's a great question, Okay. Lucy. Yes. Okay. I believe it's because they dragged and dropped the regulations around under 23 men's teams when women's teams were, yep. became professional and they just literally said change the word man to woman okay. and they said these are the rules and they right. didn't bother to address whether or not that would either be not only discriminatory but also would it rule out the fact that most women reach their peak in their late 30s. Mm. And the event I was specifically focused on, which is the individual time trial, was something that for the last three Olympics has been won and podiumed by women who are in their late 30s and early 40s, some with children. It's yeah. a pacing. It requires mental strength. It's not just fly and die sort of event. So I raced in Europe and the United States for five years, two years in the national team, three years in professional teams. And the prof- my national team experiences were good. My professional team ser- experiences were terrible, mostly, um, because probably also because of the contrast of what I'd hoped mm. for and what was actually happening. So I was in teams um, living in Italy, the only person who spoke English, um, run by or owned by men who decided they wanted to own a women's cycling team. Sometimes the team directors would be having an affair with a rider. Sometimes they'd be not providing us with food or water. Sometimes they wouldn't drive us home after races if we'd performed poorly. They very rarely paid us or they tried to get out of paying us. Um, Rates of sexual harassment, sexual abuse were just appalling. Mm. And that that became normal and it almost became a joke. And people would say to me at car parks in races, because you'd meet up every time, all your friends and 
competitors and, and for, you know, other teams, would you'd all be in the same place for every race? And they'd all just say, oh, well, what would you expect? You're in an Italian team. Mm. And and so I think also, I, I mean, I'd quit my job. I'd left a marriage. I was not being a doctor anymore. So I was doubly humiliated that I was sort of this grown, smart person uh, being treated like a, a child in some sort of bad boot camp. Um, and I felt humiliated by that. And I thought, but I'm in a fortunate position. I've got an education. I've got parents mm. who love me and care about me, and I am a doctor. But if I was 19 and I had no other skills, I'd just have to suck it up. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge for so many young women. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, have you seen any of those issues um, in Australian sport? I think professional sport is still um, open to exploitation. Mm. I think attaching yourself to the performances of others is what a lot of people end up doing, either intentionally or accidentally. Mm. Uh, Coaches, parents often live vicariously through the performances of others, and Mm. we've all been pretty shaken, I think, by Yelena Dockage's revelations in her book. And that wasn't that long ago. Um, And I think we can easily say, oh, they're an Eastern Mm. Bloc family and he was always crazy. But I think we've seen other equally disaffected tennis players, men and women. Mm. Um, And I think also just speaking to some of the women I've met in this job who've formerly been in the Matildas, for example, or cricketers, explaining to me the behaviour or the situations that they endured just because that was normal. Um, Hearing Belinda Clark say that she paid to play for Australia, you know, one of our best cricketers ever, Mel Mm. Jones, who you know. Um, Some of those players, when you hear about what they've experienced and and the footballers as well, to what's happening now, we've come a very long way. It's wonderful. I think probably, if anything, of the downside of any type of improvement in the professionalisation of women's sport is we're going to see more women doing what men do, which is cheat, dope. (laughs) do wrong stuff i mean women aren't more virtuous than men they just don't uh they don't cheat um in sport as much because there's less to lose and there's less to gain by doing that yeah um what are the main priorities in your mind for addressing some of the structural changes and challenges in women's sport so we're trying to look at it through three major lenses one's around participation one around leadership and one around facilities Already, the um, Department of Sport and Rec and, and my office has um, seen $14 million worth of investment go into female-friendly facilities. And while toilets and change rooms aren't a magical remedy for everything, with the amazing influx of women's mm. and girls' football teams, it's caused a huge challenge for most, particularly for regional clubs, but also metropolitan Melbourne clubs, mm. is, oh my goodness, we've got now eight or ten new teams in one club alone. How do we cater for them? Where do the girls and women get changed? But more importantly, from my office's perspective, is what's the equitable use policy around the ground? How are you using the ground? Is it being distributed evenly? Are the girls getting time during the afternoon or are they playing at 9pm on a Sunday? Is the lighting appropriate? So not all of those things can be addressed immediately, but at least we're asking those questions. And some of the clubs are fantastic and are really proactive. Benalla is a great example. And then some of the other clubs are feeling overwhelmed and they don't know how to manage it. Leadership is a huge one. We know that women coaches, umpires and referees make up between 0 and 15% of all coaches in leadership positions. Part of that's around time. We know that women are primary carers more often than not and they don't want to lose time with their family or they don't feel like they can or they're single parents. But the other part of it is, is the scrutiny that women coaches and, and umpires are under. And I know you've Shiloh Curtis, who you've had on many times, is a brilliant commentator and a, a 
uh, football head. And she's talked about working with women umpires with the VFL and the AFL before it started at the AFLW and that women were saying, I'm happy to be a boundary umpire, but I don't want to be on the field because if I'm the one blowing the whistle, men will scream at me from the sidelines. They'll insult me, swear at me, you know, intimidate me. And if you're a 15-year-old girl, why would you want to do that? So making those environments safe is really important. Educating the sports to say these girls need to have the rules given to them and then they need to be supported in enacting those rules and angry or ugly parents won't be tolerated. I think mm. that's a hard one. Um, but we also want to see women on boards we, of sport, state sporting associations and we've got a quota. I'm, I'm in full support of quotas. I think yeah. that as a young woman, like a lot of young women, we think ah, we don't need quotas. Mm. I'm smart. I'll get there because I'm great. Uh, we've heard Sam Moston talk about her appointment onto the AFL Commission and when she got that spot, women were harder on her than men. They said she was a disgrace that yep. she'd been appointed there. And I just find that appalling that, you know, that woman's CV is extraordinary. And yet I think we still we still like using the word merit. I think we've come to understand what kind of barriers unconscious bias have in terms of equitable representation on boards. Well, when we did these regional forums, one of the things they kept talking about was board quotas and saying, but you don't want to just hire any woman, you want the right woman. I said, but if you look around the room, are all the men on the board the right men? Did they get there through merit? Mm. Or did they kick 300 goals in a season or they had the highest run rate? Because the feedback we get from most clubs now and sporting associations is actually our board doesn't necessarily have the skills we need. So it's about doing a skills audit, having a nominations committee. Lee Russell has worked with Tennis Victoria and done amazing work with them. And now women are clamouring to get on the board of Tennis Victoria. So that's the leadership um, perspective is looking at ways that women and girls can hold more keys to the shed if you like and so that that's good for our sons as well as it's good for our daughters because then they look up and they say yep that lady's got the whistle she's in charge or that mm-hmm. lady's the president even looking around our clubs um, you go into any old cricket club or footy club and there's honour boards with men's names on them there's men, pictures of men there's big trophies for men teeny tiny trophies for women yeah. you know the message there is the girls aren't as important yeah so we want to change that And then participation is a huge one. I think for anyone who's interested in sport, we don't find very many barriers to participation. If it's riding, I'll still, if it's raining, I'll still ride to work, but I'll wear a raincoat. But for a woman who doesn't ride a bike, if the weather's bad, if it's dark, if she's injured, she won't do those things. So trying to find ways that girls and women can feel like they can access anything. Vic Health had done some research ahead of their This Girl Can campaign, which is launched in three weeks, and said the three major barriers for inactive or underactive women and girls are worrying about how they look, worrying about how well they do their thing, and judgment. Judgment of what people will say, like, oh, who's looking after your kids, Lucy, while you're doing this, you know? And people do not ask men who their babysitter is when they're playing so footy true. or soccer. And that idea, too, around the curse of comparison, I talk about this a lot, that we women are think I wouldn't want to go and play cricket because I don't know how to do it and you think well someone can show you and no one expects you to be perfect at it initially um, my partner might go to a golf day and I'll say oh but you don't play golf and he'll say oh well how hard can it be it go. but I would never do that I've never played golf have you seen that the curse of the comparison um, affect AFLW this season absolutely I've been blown away by it I think that um, and, and I've experienced it so much in cycling that it mm. wasn't shocking to me. Mm. But to see people think, well, let's compare, let's also be be quite honest, let's find any girl on the field and compare her to Buddy Franklin. Oh, you're right, she doesn't kick it as far. Mm. She's possibly not as accurate. Um, but again, and I've seen the writing you 
we've done about this last season, that idea of not only has there been a 10 or 15 year gap or hiatus for a lot of these women in skill development, but you're not even picking the best woman in the league to compare to the best man in the league. And no one compares Usain Bolt's running speed to the best 100 metre runner in the world who's a woman, whose name I don't even know, which Mm. is embarrassing. So I think we need to, and, and so cycling has suffered from this, which is commentators would watch a women's cycling race and say, it's boring, nothing's happening, because it wasn't unfolding the way they thought cycling should look. So the idea that we can say, actually, it's a different product, they're different athletes, mm. um, there's all shapes and sizes, even Debbie Lee telling me that they needed to have four different sizes of shorts, because some girls are small-waisted and bigger-hipped, some girls are straight through, some girls are really big in the thighs, some girls are teeny-tiny. So the idea that they just had one pair of shorts to fit everyone, Peter Sell talks about this as well. I think she's pretty excited about a women's team because she might even have some St Kilda gear that fits her because she's so small. So it's been extraordinary to hear that. And I think secondly, as you know, you should never read the comments, but um, the number of people who feel like they're experts on mm. any type of sport who've never in their life played a game, I can't run for gas looking into the air and catch a ball so I'm never going to scream at someone for dropping a ball and not taking a mark in those circumstances and when I went to that mugger's kick, kick and coffee at Arden Street in 2016 I thought oh okay so now that someone is explaining to me how to perform a skill I've got a bit more confidence mm. to do it but I'm not going to go play a game of footy mm. I mean I don't know how to do that so I'm not going to criticize a professional woman running around being amazing and yet people are very free with their opinions and I think that um it's what we're seeing now is actually just brilliant commentary, really consistent Mm. um, language around supporting those athletes as athletes. And I do agree a little bit with some of the the constructive stuff around saying, let's let's be critical. You know, let's say when an athlete's possibly made a mistake or missed an opportunity, I think those important things as well. We don't want to just say, hey, these girls should just be happy to be there. Mm. They're all ambitious. They're highly motivated. We need to criticise their skill. Um, but one another thing Debbie Lee's talked to me about is that terrible thing that women experience, the footy players, when they're getting video feedback. The first thing they do, well, the first five minutes, all they're doing is looking at what they look like and thinking, I look fat, I don't look cool. And I've done that. You can be winning a bike race and the photos people show you and you think, yeah, I look ugly in that photo. I don't want to... I don't want the world to see that. Men do not do that. It's such a particularly female thing, isn't it? We're very critical of ourselves. And I think that's why we become critical of other women Mm. is because we're fearful of judgment of what people say about our bodies or how we look or how we dress Mm. or if we have eyelash extensions. And then we can be judgy of others. And I think that's just unnecessary. So what are the sorts of things that government can do? Like these, you know, we're talking about in a very specific um, particular barriers are there changes you can make in governance that can affect these kinds of things? Moreland City Council is certainly being held up as a bit of a gold standard on how a local government can um, absolutely implement change. So nearly nine years ago now, they started looking at the ground usage policies and the clubs who were part of their council. Mm. And they said, you want to be in our club, in our city council and use our grounds, you have to have a women's team if you're going to have a men's team. And you have to show us that you're allowing them access to the same grounds for the same amount of time. And there was a lot of resistance, but they also supported some of the clubs that were more resistant through that process. It has become a real a standard of way that a local council mm. can actually have some decision-making and some power over clubs that want to use those facilities. Because if we look at Metropolitan Melbourne, all of the grounds are owned by councils. 
We've seen um, also state government with not only funding, the funding that has gone out for female-friendly facilities is implement, is augmented sorry, by other investors. So if, for example, $100,000 goes to the Gisborne football ground, uh, extra money has come in from that local council to support them. So state government um, donates funds and then other local government and other sponsors contribute. But then part of that, and this is something my office really wants to look at, is how are we measuring that change? We need to ensure that we had numbers around data and participation beforehand and then post-investment. Are girls and women really coming to this club? Are they staying in this club? But also, do they feel safe? Do you have a club respect policy? Do you have a reconciliation template? Are you LGBTQI friendly? Are there any trans women playing at club? Do they feel safe there? What kind of women do you have on your committee? So this is the data we want to start collecting as well so we can say what investment works and what doesn't. Uh, the board quota is absolutely a way that government can impact that. And I've been doing as much as possible to engage with the sport, particularly that are the ones that say, why would we want women on our board? Um, I'm just seeing that as an opportunity to educate them. And I'm using examples from the Defence Force and other environments which are, have been, and mm. College of Surgeons, historically extremely uh, resistant to... Well, I was going to ask you that because you do come from a fairly yeah. um, male-dominated um, background in terms of medicine. Are there things that you are taking from the, that experience into yeah. this new role? Some of it negative, some of it positive. I mean, when you get into med school, it's around 50% men mm. and women. So you you still think you're naive and you're stupid and you think, I could do anything. I could be the head of the College of Surgeons. And then you realise, you talked about unconscious bias earlier, that's what medicine is filled with. It's not that they say, sorry, no women can do orthopaedic surgery. Mm. But they say, oh, here are the requirements. And you look at that and you think, well, I'm not going to be able to have a kid or have a partner, I'm going to need to be a single person who's supported by someone or a parents. So overwhelmingly, people who get through surgical training are young single men or married men with no children. Yeah. So then it gets to a point of how much can you tolerate uh, the behaviour around you, and if you can't tolerate it, you leave. So what we end up then is, I suppose that's what a patriarchy is. It's not just that it only advantages men, but it's a structure that supports and enables a certain type of man to be advanced at the expense of everyone else. Mm. And yet what we've seen with some of the other colleges and the ways, and particularly Defence Force, what they did is they looked at their SAS and said, all of our special forces men look the same and they're not blending in in marketplace in Middle East anymore. What about if we brought some women into the SAS? And so they did. And five women have graduated from selection of special forces mm. because they realised actually the job requirements have changed. We need women who can blend in. We don't just need big, strong, tough men all the time. So in a way, they did a skills audit, if you like. And so I'm using those stories to highlight to say I was at a golf breakfast this morning. There's a fair amount of, I suppose, uh, traditional or historical ways of thinking about golf. And when you're not a golf club person and you go and meet these people and they say, oh, well, this is the way this works. And I say, but why? They look at you like you're crazy. So there's a lot of that, oh, because it always has been, you know. Um, I was pretty dismayed last week to see that headline about the AFL superpower, super panel of 10 handpicked men that are going to be overseeing everything about the sport. Mm. And I thought, is anyone asking if those men have the right merit just because they've all played? Doesn't we mean have been wisest. asking if it is going to be all men. Like it's, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. They, they listed quite to, a few of them did. and I wasn't sure. No, but it will be interesting to see mm. whether they um, they want to make that a diverse mm. group of people. Mm. And maybe even some non-footballers. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You were talking at um, International Women's Day at some panels last week 
And at one of them, you were asked to imagine what the world might be like for a woman in 2030. What do you dream of? Well, <laughs> if we're talking about AFL, I want there to be women coaching men. Because I think that that's actually the last bastion, if you like, mm -hmm. that we're all okay with women leading other women. But when we have women in charge of men and that's normal and acceptable, uh, then we know that we've really reached gender equality because the right person got the job um, and she's inspiring and leading and passionate and hard and assertive and she knows her sport and she may not have played it mm. or she may have by that time. I met, I was fortunate enough to meet with Major General Simone Wilkie and hear her describe what it was like to get to a position where she was the first woman to lead troops into Afghanistan. And she said to me, I think if, if I can lead troops into Afghanistan, women can run footy. And I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good point. Finally, you are a huge Western Bulldogs fan. I am. How do you see their chances of making it Very to the grand strong. final? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't mean to sound like an idiot, but I am, I am very excited for this season in general because what I've found so fascinating is watching the variation in, in result, that there's been quite a lot of upsets. Mm -hmm. um, Collingwood shouldn't have won last week nor the week before. Um, you know, things that have been happening that show, I suppose, like in the men's game, the momentum and how things mm -hmm. can swing. But I, particularly around the doggies, I think that what Debbie Lee's influence and guidance has brought them is to perhaps have a more all-round approach. I'm absolutely no expert on the way they work the team. And it's obviously unfortunate that Brennan's been injured. But I do think that they weren't just relying on a few key players mm -hmm. the way they might have been last season. And I think they've approached it a bit more strategically. And she described to me some of the decisions she made around the draft and, and the, what the list might look like. And so they probably come at that with a bit more purpose this season. Um, I think they can go all the way, but I also, I love Melbourne and I was very sad to see Hickey injured last week. Mm -hmm. She's terrific for the game and a great personality and an amazing athlete. Um, and they've shown some real fluctuations in form too. You know, that I don't feel like they should have lost that game in Alice Springs, no. um, given they'd gotten there early and they acclimatised to the heat. So it just goes to show that anything can happen. But I seriously, <laughs> I haven't looked at the 3v5 and the 4v6. But um, look, I do want the doggies to win. But also I feel that it's because it's Melbourne AFLM will win. Melbourne are going to win the flag this year because uh, it's it's to do with us. Um, Dr. Kate will know about this. It's okay. an Omen Watch situation, but it's it's to do with Clarkson's legacy and okay. the men that he's coached, and those coaches have gone on to win. So Hardwick so and turn. Bevo. So it's actually um, AFLM's turn, turn okay. to win the flag this year. So the women don't need to win okay. this year. They've redeemed themselves anyway well, from last just, season. I think we should just shake hands and say, <laughs> win, Brady. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. So it's looking like Princess Park is going to be hosting an AFLW grand final. And I've got to say straight up, the thought that we are having, and given that we're Victorians, we're not trying to be too parochial, but last year the grand final wasn't here and um, we didn't get to go. But thinking about the fact that there's going to be a, an AFL grand final, AFLW grand final in our home state that we will get to attend if we get there really early and queue up um is my heart is just beating a million miles a minute i know yeah. but interestingly i did see a couple of tweets yesterday from particularly gws fans who were um 
feeling pretty upset about it. We had one from someone who calls themselves Pethy11 and they said, it's hard to convince my partner if GWS make the grand final to let me spend $400 on a Saturday morning flight down when entry to the, to the game can't even be guaranteed. Yeah. At the very least, please let club members buy tickets. Mm, it's yeah. really, so it's a big challenge. It's a huge problem. Like if you think about one o'clock game, what time would we have to get there to get a seat? 3 a.m. Mm. Yeah. Well, we Sleep have slept out before. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I find really interesting is that it's the launch of AFL-M next week. So on Saturday, it's not, there's not going to be clear air. There are two other AFL-M games, one at Docklands and one at the MCG. And I wonder whether, like, I wonder why they've scheduled this grand final for that Saturday. I don't, what are your thoughts about maybe doing it on the Monday night and having it televised or, you know, just somewhere where it's get given clear air. I school feel night like for school, kids, yeah, is I that a like problem? So many school okay. families and children. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it needs to be accessible, which is why I would say it can't be a night grand final as well. Well, it can't be at Princess Park. No, I know, but there's no way they'd put, put it up against Hawthorne and Collingwood. Clear air be... is excellent, but mm. what what is that? A game on it. There's no game on at the same time, though, is there? There's a game on at three thirty-five yeah. at Docklands. So, so just at the end of it, end of the final. That's what happened last year. Yeah, yeah. just go straight across. Yeah. You know, I rarely change my tough. mind on something. Mm. Like I'm because I'm, you're an old person. I know this will shock <laughs> you that I'm very stubborn, but I've changed my mind on this because I was quite adamant that it needed to be at Princess Park if it was a Melbourne final, and just thought, you know, it's the atmosphere and the vibe. The vibe. It's the vibe. Just, you know, the last couple of times I've been there, it's just not, it's not okay. You know, mm-hmm. the if you need to go to the toilet during the game, you miss at least a quarter, possibly half a match. Mm. Like there is no quick way. Mm. Um, there's not enough facilities there. You know, even the the footage the other day, my, my partner paused it and went back and he said, have a look at this as the players are coming out the race. It's disgusting. It's, it, it's not worthy of a AFLW grand final. Um, you know, the it's run down. Um, we've heard from a number of sources that there was some genuine concern about the safety of one of the yep. stands there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and if there is a grand final there, I'm not sure that they would let people sit in there. I don't know that. The but you can't mm-hmm. stop people from sitting in there. They sat in there last um, at the opening game last season and I think people were holding their breaths. They were. And so, we've heard this from a lot of sources yep. that, you know, it's just... I think they need to actually make a decisive move here and Where change the it. time of a – if it's going to be in Melbourne, you need to change the time of the AFLM match and you need to hold it at, at the Dockland Stadium. I just can't see another venue that's the right quality um, and safety standards and ability to be ticketed, um, ability for public transport, for access, for you know people who, who have a mobility impairment who cannot queue up um, people who want to travel. You think about all the barriers to sport for women watching and playing and then you add another barrier onto this beautiful event where I feel that the what's being said is we want the atmosphere. So they want a packed house. They'd rather a packed house than a few empty seats or, you know, even 50,000 empty seats. But is that what's most important or is it most important to say that everyone who wants to go to this can go to this? And, like at, that at the end safety. of the season that we say yeah. to them throughout the whole season, come, oh, the, the numbers are down, the numbers are down, the numbers are down. You get one event where you, the numbers won't be down well, exactly. and they go, oh, but we want it to look good and we want it to be full. But, you know, even if you haven't been to an AFLW match, if you're a, a Melbourne supporter and they happen to make it or if you're a Western Bulldogs fan, and I'm only saying those teams because they're Melbourne-based, 
surely you'd turn up. Like yep. the the opportunity to see your club play in a grand final, a historic mm. grand final, exactly. Her historic, exactly. Her historic. I know. <laughs> yeah. I find it really frustrating. I think it should be played at the G. I really do. And when we say, "Oh, there's another game scheduled," yeah, there was always there was always going to be an AFL exactly. grand final on this weekend. There's like, a grand final, or there is re- a round one home and away match. Yeah, so reschedule let's it. reschedule one of them. It's insane. Anyway, let's talk about the games coming up because they are all absolute crackers this time round. I actually want to get your tips, ladies. <sighs> so Giants versus Lions. Oh, I'm happy to tip. That I'm happy to be the first to tip that. That's on Friday night because I, I already tipped this a few weeks ago. I said that this is being played at the Blacktown Sports Complex. Yep. There have been, I think, two draws out of three games played there or something like that, so I'm predicting a draw. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Heard it, you heard it here first. You're a stone-cold weirdo, Lucy. <laughs> I'm going to tip the Giants because I feel like they're coming home with a wet sail. Yep. Giants by one. Ooh. Yeah, Giants. Mm-hmm. They you? need Yeah. You? Emma Race? Uh, Giants by a Courtney Gum. Ooh, <laughs> that big. That, that could big. either be a five-way kiss of death. Or <laughs> That's right. I ball. know. At Sorry. least Kate did actually say the draw. Okay, Frio Blues. Both have a lot to play for. Uh, Frio for me. Yeah. Frio at home and, um, yeah, they've been playing Frio, well. Frio, sorry, Emma. I'm going to back Carlton. Just because. Bless you. I'm going for Freo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that that is, uh, I think that's great for Freo if they do win. And I think for the Blues, they need to take a good hard look at themselves. And I don't mean the players. I mean everyone around and they need to reassess what they're doing for next year. Dogs D. Great for football. Great for football. Dogs D. It's a tough one. Oh, this is the game that's most impossible for, for me to pick. Can um, I just say one thing? You've never had a more level playing field. If Katie Brennan comes back and plays in this game, which I suspect that she will, they the Dogs have lost Izzy Huntington, who's a forward, but the Ds have mm. lost a key defender in Mel Hickey. Yeah. So I'm you go like Dogs. Oh, level, level, level. I'm going Dogs. Sorry, Lucy. The hard thing about this is the team that wins will go through to the grand mm. final. The team that doesn't win has a real chance of missing out. If yeah. it's a draw, they both go through to the grand final. Do you know that? They yeah. should get in cahoots. Cahoots. Oh, I've got a maths well, injury. It depends because it. if they draw and GWS and Adelaide win, they all finish on 18 points and then it comes down to percentage. Yeah. Stop throwing your calculator at me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You've ruined I, my fun now. Do you know what? With You know that I, I love the dogs. I'm, I think Melbourne might get this. I sort of I, feel Melbourne might too. I feel like, I feel like Melbourne wants it or something. At the moment. Mm. Um, they won't f- both want it, but... That first quarter on the weekend, that was looking pretty good. That was amazing. I feel sick in my guts about yeah, this game. Same. I could just throw up. I actually dreamt about it. Someone on Twitter said that they dreamt about it, and I was like, I dreamt about it too. I'm not tipping it. It's going to be packed. <laughs> Did you notice I said didn't say anything? No. Yeah. Tipping's for schmucks anyway. Sitting oh, pies. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, schmucks. Tipping, schmipping. Pies and crows. It's another big another one. Game. It's another big one. Uh, well, you know, conceivably it could – the two grand final spots, or at least one of the grand final spots, could still be up for grabs at this point. Um, I think that might be a factor, but um, I can't not tip Adelaide since I go for them. I'm so looking forward to this game that I think it's going to be an absolute cracker. And Pick someone, Lucy. Uh, crows. Okay. <laughs> Dust. I'm going to go pies. And in my head, I just heard from Nicole Hayes, who said the Lions will beat the Giants. She did say that. She said Sabs <laughs> will win it off her own boot. Um, I'm going to tip the Crows. 
for that one. Um, just because I love watching a happy Beck Goddard at the end of a match. Same. I love a coach who shows emotion. Same. Tipping's not the same as making it so. <laughs> Yes, it is. Oh, my tipping is just a... <laughs> is it? Oh, excuse a... me. says Lucy Rays who thinks that if she pays the guy to wash her windscreen near the MCG, then that means Hawthorne will win. Mm. Oh, <laughs> must be, they must be happy. Well, That's unfortunately, true. everyone else is onto it now, and that poor guy has run off true. his feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say this about Pies Crows is I'm intrigued to know when you play for emotion, like I never really quite can quite quantify when they say, oh, they're playing for a place in the grand final, they're playing for respect or they're playing for their coach. What is that? Like, how do you quantify that? So I feel like this is the game where the Pies really want to go out on a high and they are in form and they are amazing. And I think that on any day they could actually beat the best teams in the comp. Definitely. And so this is their test. But if you're playing to go back to back in a grand final, surely you throw everything at it. Like it's going to be, it's a going heart to be, stopper. it's going to be a heart stopper. So I feel, in my mind, I think if you've got the option to play in a grand final, that you push harder. And like Eb Marinoff, we've seen her just get so many injuries in the last couple of weeks. She could potentially, potentially do like a Monty Python and like be playing like mm. no arm, silly war, no, no other arm, <laughs> like only a flesh wound, so only a flesh wound. <laughs> yeah, right. like she'll come out with, she'll get decapitated mm. in a contest, and she'll be like, Nah, I'm still right, I'm on. You know, she'd do a dipper. She could do anything, I think. Um, um, so I'm going to go with the Adelaide Crows on that one, but it's going to be huge. Just wanted to mention something really quickly. The State Library of Victoria has an exhibition called The Changing Face of Victoria. But this is for all of you fans all across Australia because there's an image in there, Should Women Play Football? It was published in the newspaper paper Table Talk on the 28th of July 1921 and it features two women's teams the Fleetwoods and the Chorleys and is thought to be the second ever documentation of women playing Australian rules football in Victoria the first being the Khaki Clothing Factory and the Ballarat's Lucas Factory. Um, You can see the image on display Changing Face of Victoria exhibition it's on to the end of the year if you're in Melbourne but if you're uh, in uh, national international you can see a video with Tim Hogan the manager of the collection uh, development and discovery it is a kick-ass photo of women wanting to play footy brilliant well if you want to see some kick-ass women playing football make sure you get along to the games watch the games i don't believe any of them are on the main channel of the main saturday night's game is free to air but you might need to find it on the subsidiary yes have we got through the whole episode without mentioning a brand no, look at so. no, <laughs> no, I don't think you so. Said something. <laughs> congratulations, Sexy congratulations, everyone, on getting to this point because it is a fast and furious seven weeks. And the people who listen to this podcast and who tweet us and message us and Instagram and all those things, you have been, you are the wind beneath the wings of the players, but also of our bingo wings. And we thank you so much. <laughs> We're almost there. This is very exciting. Get along, see the games, get vocal. And go footy! footy.